and welcome to The Watcher's Diaries, a weekly podcast all about Buffy. I'm Mary, and this week we're talking about Julie Kenner's Carpe Demon, the first of her Adventures of a Demon Hunting Soccer Mom series. So as you may have noticed, Dylan is still out. They're a bit under the weather this week, but I promise, promise, promise they'll be back next week. Until then, I'm flying solo, which is fine because it's book club week. And as an English major, rambling about books is what I do best. But before we dive into the world of Julie Kenner proper, I have just a few announcements and one correction. While this podcast is normally not spoiler free, we're going to be a bit more wary when talking about this series. And here's my reasoning for this. When we talk about Buffy, we feel it's safe to assume that 90% of you listening have seen the series all the way through at least once. So you may forget some things, but they're not necessarily spoilers. With a book series like this, I don't know how many of you even heard of this before we mentioned it on the podcast. So there's a greater chance that some of you are reading it for the first time. And if you are, I want to preserve the twists and the turns and let's face it, the emotional gut punches that come a little bit down the line. So aside from being like, oh yeah, we'll learn more about this. I'm going to try to keep the spoilers either non-existent or to a bare minimum. I know every week we ask you all to tell us what you think and if you like what we're doing here. This week, we mean it more than usual. Is it something you like? Do you like us covering things that are a little Buffy adjacent? Do you like this series? Would you like to see us cover the rest of the books? Tell us, please. I understand this is not going to be anybody's favorite episode. This episode is literally me rambling at you all for 60 minutes about a book. I'm going to try to be entertaining though. So don't judge the whole book club idea or the book club series on the fact that you had to listen to me talk for an hour. You know, hopefully you guys like the source material. All right, my correction. I have a slight correction from our episode on Never Kill a Boy on the First Date. Talking to Jackie, who you guys know by now is my industry expert. She let me know that actually casting a child for the annoying one would have been more expensive for the studio. You need court approval to hire a child actor. You need to make sure there's a teacher on set. And the fact that they can't work as long of hours makes things take longer. This is apparently the whole reason behind what we used to call Dawson's casting, where they hire 24, 25, 26 year olds to play teens because being legal adults, there's much less red tape. All right, let's get to it. Carpe Demon, written by Julie Kenner. It was published in July of 2005, or so my paperback edition tells me. And the synopsis this week, we're going to take straight from the back of the book. Lots of women put their careers aside once the kids come along. Kate Connor, for instance, hasn't hunted a demon in ages. That must be why she missed the one wandering through the pet food aisle of the San Diablo Walmart. Unfortunately, he managed to catch her attention an hour later when he crashed into the Connor house intent on killing her. Now Kate has to clean up the mess in her kitchen, dispose of a dead demon, and pull together a dinner party that will get her husband elected to county attorney, all without arousing her family's suspicion. Worst yet, it seems the dead demon didn't come alone. It's time for Kate Connor to go back to work. We begin with what is a fairly solid opening chapter, introducing us both to the character of Kate and to the world she inhabits. We also begin to see all the ways in which this world is both very similar and very different from the world of Buffy. Kate Connor, former demon hunter, now retired and living in San Diablo with her second husband, Stuart, and her two children, Allie and Timmy. We first meet 
seeing Kate as she's out running errands and being out of practice and more than a little distracted by her children, she fails to notice the demon in the pet food aisle, a demon inhabiting the body of an old man, which, to be fair, Kate gives as another reason she missed the demon. Demons don't normally inhabit the bodies of the old and or sick. And that makes perfect sense. If you're going to take a vessel, you want it to be a strong, healthy one. Through the course of this shopping trip, we learn a bit about Kate and about the town of San Diablo. San Diablo, in design, is basically the polar opposite of Sunnydale. While the Slayer's town was built upon the literal mouth of hell, San Diablo is a holy place, thanks to the cathedral that sits upon the hill and the holy relics it contains. The fact that the holy energy of the town seems to repel demons is exactly the reason Kate and her first husband, Eric, decided to settle there. It was safe and would allow them to raise their daughter without having to constantly look over their shoulder. We learn Eric died just after Allie's ninth birthday, which is about five years before our story begins. Allie, for all intents and purposes, seems to have an okay relationship with her stepfather and little brother. We also learn that Stuart needs Kate to help throw an impromptu dinner party for some of the other attorneys and a few judges, the purpose of which is to help him network and get votes for his run as county attorney. Kate, though, not so good when it comes to the entertaining. But still, she's sure she can whip something up. Pasta, salad, apple tart. Not super impressive, but just impressive enough. As Kate mentally adds to her shopping trip, Stuart asks to talk to Allie, telling the teen that she can go spend the night at a friend's house if she wants. Great. So not only is there an impromptu dinner party, but the husband just sent Kate's help packing. A relatable problem for many of you listening, I'm sure. It should be noted that the shopping trip consisted of several stops. So they started with Walmart and the Demon, and they end with the grocery store. And there was a moment somewhere in there as they were leaving Walmart that Kate thought the old man was watching her. But by the time she thought to check it out, he was gone. And this is important because once Allie's gone to Mindy's, who's her friend, and Kate is prepping dinner with Timmy watching videos, said old man comes crashing through her kitchen window. A problem for a lot of reasons, but mostly because he identified her as a hunter, something he shouldn't have done given her retired status. Thankfully, Kate isn't that out of practice and makes short work of him. Unfortunately, when the demon rushes from the body, it leaves just that, a body, which Kate now needs to hide in her pantry as there's no time to call Father Corletti before the party begins. So demons here are a little different than in the Buffyverse, as they all seem to be of the possessing variety. They're all out there looking for human vessels. You don't really have demons just strutting about all scales out, tails out. Stuart arrives home and Kate is forced to make up an excuse for the broken window, blaming it on one of the neighbor kids and the fact that they managed to finally hit a homer, just as she blames the mess in the pantry, which is being used to cover the dead body, on Allie. With Stuart handling both the food in the oven and the broken window, Kate heads up to get changed for the party. Returning to the party, she mingles a bit, trying to get rid of the nagging feeling brought on by the demon attack, but she can't, and so goes to call Allie, just to make sure everything is okay. Of course, as Mindy's mom, Laura, took the girls out for ice cream, there's no answer, something that sends Kate into a momentary panic. But the panic quickly switches from momentary to intense as soon as she meets Judge Larson. Because Judge Larson is a demon, she cannot let him leave her house alive. So moving on to chapter three, we get a bit more world building as Kate tries to figure out how to prove that Judge Larson is a demon. There's the breath test, which is the thing that first clued her in because demons have notorious bad breath. I don't know if it's the stench of death within the body because, you know, they're inhabiting a dead body or if it's supposed to be like the brimstone and the sulfur, whatever the reason, demons, horrible bad breath. But as soon as he starts eating, that's going to be pointless. There's the 
the whole deal where demons can't walk on holy ground, but that would involve convincing everyone to take a field trip up to the cathedral. And then there's holy water, which ends up being the winner and which she feels a bit foolish for not thinking of first. As she goes upstairs to find some holy water, we learn a bit more about demons and how there are tons of them in the world, all looking for ways to possess a body. We learn that possession while a person is alive is way more complicated than possession after a person has died, and that possessions of the living are a job for priests, not hunters. We also learn that the faithful cannot be possessed. Most common are possessions that happen at the exact moment of death. So seamless, it appears as if the person is still alive. Car crashes that no one should have survived, surgical patients who pull through against all odds, heart attack victims who get up and walk it off as if nothing happened. They're demons. All of them. Stuart does come up to find her during this, as she said she was going to check on Timmy. And it's during their conversation in the bedroom that Kate realizes just how much Stuart knows nothing of her life or who she really is, or rather was. Something that Kate says, if she has her way, he never will. After dessert, she puts a bit of holy water in one of Timmy's small plastic cups, claiming there are no clean glasses, and makes a plan to spill it on Judge Larson. Okay, I gotta give Kate some credit here, because she does have like an actual plan. She's going to go and like bump into him, the water will spill, and oh my god, I'm so sorry, which is way better than Buffy's so-called plan to spill the potion on Amy, which was just her walking over and dumping the potion on Amy. So definite plus in the Kate column for planning. However, before she can enact her plan, he bumps into her, forcing her to spill it, something she is certain he did on purpose. This is backed up when her husband returns from answering a phone call and claiming that the connection was bad, but it sounded like the person was speaking Italian. At this news, Kate finds Judge Larson staring straight at her. She needs no more proof. He's a demon. The party wraps up and everyone leaves, Judge Larson remarking how he is sure he'll see Kate again and how sad it was he didn't get to meet Allie, a remark that chills Kate as she doesn't need any demon knowing about her daughter. Once everyone is gone, she calls Allie at Mindy's again and suggests the girls come back to their house and that she'll let them stay up as long as they want. She just needs to have Allie near where she can see her and protect her, especially after Allie mentions the boy at the movie theater who has a crush on her, a boy she describes as cute with bad breath. Kate picks the girls up and brings them to her place and though they plan to sit up and watch Harry Potter till dawn, they actually pass out sometime during Chamber of Secrets, which is fine with Kate as it allows her to check all the doors and windows and call Father Corletti. During the conversation with Father Corletti, we learn that he is the closest thing Kate has to a father, that he's stationed at the Vatican, and that Kate will always feel like Kate Andrews, her maiden name, around him. We also learn that the demons are looking for something in San Diablo, something the Vatican has yet to identify. Kate asks when reinforcements are coming, and Father Corletti tells her there are none, that she must fight this battle. Kate's conversation with Father Corletti continues. We learn that hunter recruitment is dwindling, that the so-called youth of today don't have the stamina needed to complete the training. A problem is there is a greater need than ever for their kind, demon activity on the rise. During this conversation, we are also introduced to the idea of an alimentatore. The alimentatore, which actually means power supply in Italian, and I am so very sorry if I butcher any of the Italian words to come, is kind of the same as the Slayer's Watcher. They act as a mentor and a teacher to the hunter, guiding and training them, and they act as liaison between the hunter and the Vatican. We should probably also mention that this conversation 
conversation marks the second or third time the term Forza Scura is used. The Forza Scura is the demon hunting collective sent forth under the Vatican, the group to which Kate and her late husband Eric once belonged. The name translates to the Dark Force. The fact that an Elementatore has been assigned to her means the Vatican knows something, something of why the demons are showing up in San Diablo. She begs Father Corletti to tell her something, anything, even if he can't tell her everything. So he tells her that the Vatican believes it has to do with Goramesh, the decimator, and one of the high demons. The news leaves Kate stricken, sick and worried, and she ends up falling asleep alone in the guest room from which she called Rome. She's found in there by Allie the next morning, who asks her if she was thinking about her dad, and in a way, yeah, she was. They head down to breakfast, made by Stuart, and Allie reminds her mom that it's back to school shopping day, which just does not work for Kate, between needing to meet her alimentatore and the dead bodies still in her pantry. Thankfully, some quick talking leads to her convincing Stuart to take Allie and Timmy to the mall in her stead. With the family gone, it's time to hide slash dispose of the body, something that, in the past, Kate was always able to leave to the cleanup crew, and something she is not loving having to do now. With her meeting with her new alimentatore so soon, she basically just has time to drag the body out to the shed and hide it there. Right before Laura surprises her, which not a good idea, Laura, as Kate almost takes Laura down. They talk of the past, vaguely, Kate telling Laura that sometimes the past sneaks up on her. Laura, like everyone, thinks she means Eric, and Kate is okay with that. Post their coffee chat, Kate heads up to the cathedral, which we learn is called St. Mary's. And we learn a bit more about the cathedral. It sits at San Diablo's highest point, overlooking both the Pacific and the Channel Islands. And while all the churches and cathedrals are holy ground, St. Mary's has a little extra oomph, and that everything beyond the communion rail, the altar, the sanctuary, even the basement and the ceiling, was built with mortar that contains the bones of St. Kate wanders about, making excuses as to why she's there, and wondering just who her alimentatore might be, when Father Ben tells her there's someone waiting for her in the courtyard. She heads out and is shocked to see Judge Larson. Immediately, she's in attack mode. She grabs a Happy Meal toy from her purse, ready to do him in when he stops her. He's her alimentatore. Obviously, Kate doesn't believe him. What about the dinner party? His breath? The things he said? All attest. Kate was out of practice, and he needed to know where she stood skill-wise. The breath was garlic, and not brushing his teeth for a week. The comments were Kate hearing what she wanted to hear. They head to Kate's to fetch the body, taking it to the local dump, where Kate learns that $25 will buy you entry without questions. It makes her, and me, wonder how many murderers just roll up to the dump with a wad of cash. Hiding the body deep within the trash already there, they head out, returning to Kate's. Okay, so now we know. After the sixth date, in which Dylan has betrayed and killed their lover, they can take them to the dump for just $25. I really hope the FBI doesn't listen to this podcast. We're not murderers, we swear. We're just two people who have a really morbid sense of humor. We learn a little bit about Larson here, about how he was 10 years out of law school when he was made an alimentatore, about how his own research into demons and the occult led him to discovering the Forza Scura, and about how he has done his research on Kate, read up on her last alimentatore's file. Kate's last alimentatore, Wilson, sounds even more like a watcher, being British and all. They discuss Goramesh, and Kate is eager to get training. After all, if she's going to take down the big bad, then she needs to be ready. There's just one problem though. Goramesh has yet to take a physical form, which means the Forza is way more interested in what he could be after. Kate tells Larson finding out is his job as an alimentatore, but between his job as a sitting judge and the fact that Kate already has an in at the cathedral thanks to volunteering, they decide she'll be the one to search the archives. Or rather, Larson decides and Kate, after a bit of arguing, gives in, which in turn causes Larson to give in to a bit of Swiffer handle fencing, something that keeps them distracted right up until Stuart and the kids get home. Their arrival causes Kate and Larson to fudge their way through why he's at the house. He makes up something about being in the neighborhood, and he and Stuart go to talk work and politics.
tactics as Kate gets Timmy settled. She rejoins them quickly, however, afraid Larson might accidentally spill her secret. A paranoid fear. She knows. Eventually, Mindy comes over with her mother and Laura in a moment of concern about the state of Kate's marriage. Let's slip that she saw Kate and Larson sparring in the backyard. This leads to Kate saying that she is thinking about taking a self-defense class. A lie. And that she thinks Allie should join her. Something that now she says it, she does actually think is a good idea. Better her daughter be prepared and all. There's some debate as Allie has a lot going on, but in the end, it's decided. Self-defense is a go for Kate, Allie, and... Mindy. Laura declines as exercise or anything remotely resembling exercise is not really her thing. The girls head upstairs to discuss their school wardrobe as the moms once more discuss Eric Then, after an impromptu fashion show and some pizza, it's movie time. Kate goes to take out the trash while the girls try to locate a DVD they want to watch and that is okay for Timmy until he conks out when she's attacked by yet another demon. This one a teenager. A teenager who, according to Kate, looks more than a little like Richie Cunningham. I'm gonna guess I need to explain who Richie Cunningham is. So Richie Cunningham is a character from Happy Days. He was the main character, I believe, um, along with Fonzie, of course, but the Cunningham family was kind of the focus. And he was played by Ron Howard, who is now known as a fabulous director. Chapter eight brings us a lot of information about Gormesh, about Larson, and about Kate's first husband, Eric. The teen demon, as it turns out, was merely a messenger, not sent to kill Kate, but to scare her, to let her know that Gormesh is indeed in town and whatever he is seeking, it includes bones. Okay, not unusual. Higher level demons often send their minions to fetch things like the bones and hair of saints, having their followers destroy them in these twisted rituals. We also find out Kate's age here, as she mentions being 38. So it's not quite 40 like Dylan wanted, but it's close and it's my age. So I love, I love that Kate is 38. A late night call to Larson yields no answers, just more questions. Turns out several other places of worship were vandalized and ransacked. A small church in Lanarca, Greece, the Vatican slash Forza offices in Mexico, and a Benedictine monastery in the Tuscan Hills. The monks murdered. Well, except one who killed himself by throwing himself from the window. Very odd, given the church's view on suicide. Their cells all ransacked. The only reason the church itself wasn't destroyed was that there was a girl who came across the monastery, a hunter. She managed to defeat the demon, but died due to complications from her wounds. She was Larson's last hunter, and she was 18. This situation feels so similar to Buffy and Giles, especially near the start of season one. Not only is Kate's last elementatory gone, but Larson's last hunter is as well. And the whole description of the girl and her death and Kate's reaction to it feels very slayery. Like, yes, true. There is not just one hunter and a hunter's status doesn't depend on the death of those before her. But Kate mourns for the girl and realizes that she was once her and could be her again. She says at 18, her death didn't bother her. But now the thought of leaving her kids, it terrifies her. And so everyone is getting dragged to mass the next morning, as fear tends to make one pious. After church, with Timmy falling asleep in the back seat, Kate offers to take Allie to the mall parking lot and let her drive around. California doesn't allow people to get their licenses until they're 16, but you can get a permit at 15 and she wants Allie to be prepared. Plus, Allie seemed a little down earlier, something Kate chalks up to first day jitters as Allie is starting high school the next day. But as they're driving, 
Allie confesses that her dad used to let her drive, that he'd sit her on his lap and let her steer. This causes Kate to reflect on Eric and how he loved his secrets, his surprises, his things shared just between him and someone else. We find out his and Kate's marriage was like that. The two secretly marrying two months before their official retirement and telling no one, having an official wedding later. She thinks to herself that she should have known Eric would never go off and die without leaving Allie a few precious secret moments of her own. I am sure I will say this about 900 more times, but I really want at least one prequel book where we learn more about Kate and Eric and their pre-retirement demon hunting days. After all the revelations of the previous chapter, our next chapter is a bit of filler, clearly meant to set up things to come. Stuart asks Kate to put together another impromptu dinner party as the person who was supposed to is now unable. She drops Allie, Mindy, and some other girls off at school, drops Timmy off with Laura, who she has to watch him, promising desserts as payment, spends the morning trying to find Timmy a daycare, then hires someone to fix the window and heads off to the cathedral. What we do learn from the part of the cathedral is that none of the relics are new, so none of them could have come from the other ransacked places of worship. We also learn that anything truly valuable is locked in the vault, but the papers in the boxes Kate is supposed to be going through as part of her growing volunteer position, one that will allow her to look for the relic, should reference anything in the vault. But Kate is not meant for research. She's not an elementatore. She's a hunter. And so all the sitting around, feeling like she's not getting anywhere, it just increases her need to hit something. Leaving the cathedral, Kate prepares to continue with her errands, finding a self-defense class and getting things for the party, only to be called by the girls who are done for the day. Turns out it was a half day. She picks them up, telling them they'll need to go with her on her final errands. At the martial arts studio, we're introduced to Cutter. Handsome, charming, if not slightly flirty and presumptuous, Kate asks about getting some one-on-one training plus a class for her, Allie, and Mindy. As Cutter doesn't have any other classes that day, he asks Kate to show him what she's got. She's a bit reluctant, plus she has a dinner party to get home and set up for, but fine, fine, she can do it, you know, since Cutter already told the girl she was going to. Cutter comes at her and she lays him flat in a move that clearly impresses him, Allie, and Mindy. So much so that the girls can't stop talking about it. With a training schedule in hand, Kate leaves, heads to the grocery store, and then back home to set up for the party. However, though, Stuart promised to be home by six, and he is nowhere to be found. What she does find is an article in the local newspaper, one that details how the kid slash demon that attacked her the night before miraculously survived a wild dog attack. Only Kate knows better. He didn't survive. He died, and a demon took over his body. Looks like San Diablo's in a lot more trouble than any of them thought. Despite Stuart's absence, the party is a hit. Kate mingles as best she can, but she is understandably distracted. Not only by the fact Stuart has yet to show, but by the article she read earlier and its implications. Demons are hunting for human hosts in San Diablo, and it seems their new favorite hunting ground is the college. This all seems to come to a head when Larson arrives. Kate shows him the article. Kate shows him the article, and the anger in his face is apparent. After a near miss with one of the other partygoers who hears them talking and so assumes Goramesh is some political rival, Kate pulls him into the garage where they can talk demons in peace. Larson insists Kate stays on task, that the most important thing is finding out what Goramesh wants. Kate, however, thinks she should be out there patrolling as well, as demons in her city is not exactly an ideal situation. Larson's response is to remind her that if she gets back out there, then she is once again conducting a secret life, one she must hide from her husband and children, one that would put them all in danger. Their argument is cut short as Stuart comes home while they're in the garage, and it's discovered that his lateness is due to having been in a car accident, a rather nasty one by the look of the car, not to mention the blood on his face and shirt. Using baby wipes and an extra shirt stored in his briefcase, Kate helps him look presentable and sends him off into the party. The party eventually ends, everyone pleased with the result, especially Stuart, who manages to secure even more support and donations, and 
Kate insists Stuart get some rest, both because she's worried about him and because she wants to go patrolling. She knows she shouldn't, that Larson told her not to, but she can't help it. Her mind just won't let go of image of that boy and the fact that demons are out there preying on college kids. Calling Larson to tell him of her plan, she gets his machine multiple times. Frustrated, she then calls Father Corletti. She needs to talk to someone, needs to know that following her gut is the right thing to do. He says it was and that Wilson, her first alimentatore, would have agreed. He also confirms that Larson and Wilson knew one another, that they were friends. He then asks her if Edward has been any help to her. What now? Turns out there's a retired hunter living in San Diablo and Larson was supposed to introduce them. Interesting. Kate tells Father Corletti that no, she and Edward have not been introduced and it makes her wonder why. It also makes her really want to meet him. Arriving at the college, Kate begins looking for the so-called dog or really any sign that something is amiss. However, the night is quiet and she's just about to pack it in when she hears some kids sitting outside. She decides she better tell them to take the party inside just to be safe and heads their way, only to hear a low growl coming from the same direction. Seems her demon dog has also discovered said kids. As she approaches, the kids beg Kate to get the dog away from them, and so she offers herself as a much more tempting treat. The dog turns on her, and she prepares for the fight to come, only in the middle of it realizing her error, as the demon controlling the hellhound, for really, that's what it was, hellhound, wasn't the only demon. One of the boys was a demon as well, and he is now holding another boy at knife point. She's trying to figure out what to do, how to take out the hound and the demon. She manages to get the hound, watching it ooze black goo before bursting into flames, but it looks like she might be too late on the other. The demon drawing his hand back to slash the other boy's throat. That's when Larson arrives and kills the demon, freeing the other boy. I know she called and left him a message, but am I the only one who finds it a little weird that Larson was just there and at the exact right time? Because that struck me as a bit weird. Kate feels bad for not identifying the demon in the boy's body sooner, and Larson assures her she would have caught on eventually, that she was otherwise preoccupied, and the only reason he knew was that the demon revealed himself. An odd thing, since once in a human host, a demon almost never reveals themselves, as it would ruin the whole thing they have going on. But it doesn't matter, as Larson reminds her they will not be in this situation again, her going off to patrol on her own. She agrees, saying in the future, they will both keep each other better informed, which leads to talk of Edward, whose full name we learn is Edward Loman. And Larson says he's old, feeble, and of no use to them. He promises to tell her everything tomorrow, but for tonight they need to get home. He has court in the morning, and she has a family that will be waking soon. They each leave, and Kate heads home, only to realize she forgot the milk she said she was going out for. Her excuse in case anyone woke while she was gone. She's about to head back out to 7-Eleven when Laura taps on the window of her car. Laura, who followed her, and who saw Larson kill the boy. Laura, who thought maybe Kate was having an affair, as she is 90% certain that is what her own husband is doing. Kate realizes it's time to tell Laura the truth, and really, she is relieved. She needs a confidant, someone to talk to, and obviously that can't be Stuart. So sitting Laura down, she tells her everything about her past and the demonic hordes that are secretly roaming the earth. And of course, Laura being who she is, she wants to help. After all, she needs something to keep her mind off her husband and his possible philandering. She says she promises to be careful. We'll keep it on the DL, looking into things on the internet. Like that kid on Kim Possible, the one who never seems to leave his house. With Laura now on board, Kate offers to drive her home, even though it's just around the corner. When Laura says she doesn't need that, Kate says, actually, she does, as she needs to borrow some milk. The next morning, Kate awakes to a husband in remarkably good spirits, who feels good about his campaign and suggests that maybe they have time for a little morning fun. Timmy, however, is not about it, as he calls loudly and repeatedly for Mama from the other room. With Stuart off to work and Allie off to school, Kate prepares to take Timmy to his first day of daycare before going to meet Cutter for her one-on-one, which reminds her that she 
forgot to remind Allie that Wednesday will be their first group class. This means she'll need to call the school and have them relay the message, something that was a huge hassle in middle school and that she assumes will be just as much of a hassle now in high school. Between this and the whole demons in San Diablo thing, she resolves to get Allie a cell phone for emergencies only. Dropping Timmy off at daycare, something that is hard for the both of them, though ultimately harder for Kate, she heads to see Cutter, reminding herself that if she didn't leave Timmy at daycare, that their whole town would become overrun with demons and, well, that would make her a really horrible parent. Not keen on the idea of heading right to a moldy church basement, Kate decides to stop by and see Larson, learn more about Eddie. After narrowly avoiding her own husband and waiting for what seems like forever, she's ushered into his chambers. He knows she's come to talk about Larson, but he wants to hear what she's found in the archive so far. Nothing. That's what. Nothing. To help her out, maybe point her in the right direction, Larson tells her that they recently learned that the monk who killed himself was called Brother Michael. Kate is still perplexed as to why a monk would kill themselves unless it was accidental, like he was running to escape the demons, or perhaps it was proactive. He killed himself in order to stop himself from revealing something. Like maybe he pointed them in the direction of San Diablo under torture and afraid to say more, made sure he couldn't. An idea that's kind of giving me Merrick vibes as he killed himself so that Lothos could not make him a vampire, use him and turn him against his slayer. Brother Michael is badass. Kate manages to get out of Larson where Eddie is, a nursing home, Coastal Mists, and resolves to go see him. The idea of him there alone, possibly senile and reliving his glory days, freaks her out a bit. Enough so that she has to remind herself that she is not alone, that she has her friends and her family, and that she will be okay. Kate decides to stop by Laura's before heading to see Eddie, and Laura tells her all she's discovered so far, some of which Kate knew, like the bones of saints being in the mortar of the cathedral, and some Kate didn't, like how the five original missionaries were martyred, burned at the stake, and the church has some of the remains. While none of them were sainted, one was beautified. Remember that. Five missionaries, one beautified. Laura also tells Kate that Lenarca is where Lazarus lived. Lazarus, whom Jesus rose from the dead. Kate wonders if maybe the desecration wasn't symbolic. You know, Lazarus rose just as Goromesh's army will rise. She admits it sounds like something out of a bad B movie, but really, it's all she got. I think maybe she should have thought a bit harder on that one. Let me just say, even though I didn't remember much rereading it, after getting to the end a second time, so much stuff seemed obvious. Laura also suggests it could be symbolic before singing Dem Bones. And on Kate's confused look, Laura is shocked. Didn't she go to church camp? No, she was raised in the Vatican. Of course, they did tell ghost stories. Only those weren't so much stories as accounts of their escapades and what they heard the older hunters talking about. We learn of two other hunters in this moment, Katrina and Devin. We can assume they were close once with Kate and Eric, as the four of them seemed to hang out as teens. Laura says Kate's childhood sucked, and Kate doesn't disagree. Still, given the chance she'd do it all over again, it's hard for her not to think of Eric then, and how even though retiring probably extended their life expectancy by decades, Eric still died when it came to be his time, sooner than any of them would have liked. If we continue along with the series, aka no one writes in and tells us they hate this, you will come to learn that I have stupid love for Kate and Eric. I don't want to say too much, like I said, trying to keep this spoiler free, but the stuff we learn about them, it is it is my niche. It is right up my alley. It is the kind of relationship I just, I love. And so you will hear me gush so much about Eric as we go on and we, we learn more about him. Heading out, they go to visit Eddie. It's clear from the moment they arrive that the nursing home doesn't get many visitors. The parking lot fairly empty. As they walk inside, Kate tells the woman behind the desk that they're related to Eddie via marriage, a lie that easily slips from her tongue and that allows them to stay past the non-relative visiting hours, which are five minutes 
minutes away from ending. Directed to the rec room where Eddie is watching Jerry Springer, he first assumes Kate is a demon, but then after checking her breath and spraying her with his holy water supply, he decides she's okay. She'll still need to wait to chat though. Springer isn't over. Back in his room, Kate reveals to Eddie that she too is a hunter and that while not a hunter, Laura is a friend, a friend who knows the truth. He starts to tell them how the nursing home is full of demons when they're interrupted by a nurse, Melinda. One of the few nurses Eddie seems to like. She refills his holy water from the bathroom tap and offers to wait to give him his meds as they make him a little loopy. But Kate says that's okay. They're just leaving. After all, she still needs to get to the archives. Melinda tells Kate how it's sad, how she thinks Eddie really does believe all the creepy stuff he's saying. And that's why the doctor ordered his meds in the injection form. She also tells Kate how so many of the residents there don't have a family and how sometimes they just up and leave, check themselves out. Like Sam, who suffered a heart attack a few days ago and therefore was probably the old man who came through Kate's window. Leaving, Kate drops Laura off at home and heads to the cathedral. She does think Eddie is right, that the nursing home has demons in it, just waiting for human hosts to become available. But as none of them seem too disturbed by a hunter being on property, she can let it go for a moment, at least long enough to look through some more of the archives. Arriving at the church, she heads inside and sees Stuart. Stuart, who she didn't know was going to be at the cathedral, who rarely goes to mass with them, and who, oddly enough, doesn't seem to be looking for her. According to Father Ben, he's there working on his own project. Huh. Heading down into the archives, Kate doesn't find anything on Brother Michael, but she does find out that Stuart's boss, Clark, that his father left everything, including a ton of land to the church, excluding his spouse and children. We also learn that a Thomas Petrie won a church-sponsored scholarship and attended a Catholic college before becoming a mystery writer. And we learn that Mike Florence, who only caught Kate's attention due to the name, donated a beautifully ornate gold box with a carved crucifix attached to the lid. Something Kate likens to trinkets sold at Macy's in the 1950s. Having to get Timmy, Kate leaves the cathedral and goes to pick him up, upon which she finds out that he bit another kid in class that day. Her child is a biter! A biter! The label makes her feel terrible. Before she takes Timmy home, however, she decides to go back and get Eddie. There was something about seeing Timmy in the care of others that made her realize that place was no place for Eddie. So she was taking him home. And after that, well, she'll figure it out. Continuing with her cover story, she tells Stuart that Eddie is Eric's grandfather and that she just found out he was in town. Surely she couldn't leave him in a depressing nursing home. Besides, shouldn't Allie get to know her great-grandfather? And you know, Eddie and Timmy seem to take to each other. Timmy tucked on Eddie's lap, inspecting his eyebrows, which Timmy refers to as caterpillars. Stuart is understandably hesitant. Hello, strange man. He did not know existed until today. But once Allie finds out that Eddie is supposedly related to Eric, there's no going back. She loves Stuart's parents, of course, and they've been great, but this is the first blood family member she's ever met. Touching, even if it's a lie. And Kate knows she'll have to tell Allie the truth eventually, about how her and Eric were orphans. But you know, who was to say that Eddie wasn't Eric's grandfather? After all, stranger things have happened. They happen to her every day. With everyone settled, Kate asks Stuart about his day, saying she called to tell him about Eddie, a small lie, but that his secretary said he stepped out. He doesn't mention the cathedral, says he was out campaigning. Kate doesn't like it. Why would he hide what he was doing? Dinner happens before too much else can be said, during which Kate uses the backstory of Eddie having been a cop to cover some of his more colorful comments, saying he and the other cops he worked with used to refer to the criminals they pursued as demons. All in all, everyone seems to buy it. Later, while Kate is giving Timmy a bath, Laura comes over to catch 
up. A bit surprised, Stuart said Eddie could stay. They talk about Kate's afternoon in the archives, and while how high in the gossip meter, it rated not so high in the helpful one. They also talk a bit more about Eddie, and Laura asks if Kate really thinks there were demons at Coastal Mist. Some yes, but not the nurses. The nurses would be more pets. Humans who work for a demon, and oh shit, she realizes Goromesh must have at least one human minion in San Diablo. They rack their brains trying to think of who. Clark's a possibility given what they learned about his father. After all, Laura says, you know what they say about politicians. That's when it hits Kate. The car accident, the newfound look on life, the lying, the certainty that he'd win. Could Stuart be a demon? Well, probably not what she wants to hear. Larson tells her it's possible. News that makes Kate sorry she canceled her one-on-one training to see him. But she can't freak out. She can't. They don't know for sure yet. Laura calls and tells Kate that Eddie is driving her nuts. As Kate offered a lifetime of free desserts if Laura would do all her researchy internet kung fu stuff from her house the next day to be with Eddie. But she also admits he seems clearer. She also tells Kate she found something interesting. Brother Michael used to live at the monastery in Mexico that was ravaged. A monastery I'm guessing was connected to the Forza offices. Oh yeah, and also she's supposed to be hosting a play date at three. Well, shit. It's fine. She can handle it. She'll hit the archives for a few hours and then swing by the grocery store for snacks and pick up Timmy. Hanging up with Laura, she's almost immediately called by Allie, who is loving her new cell phone and wants to know if she and Mindy can go to the mall after school. Stan is working and Allie thinks he's cute. Stan, is that the boy she told Kate about earlier? The one from the movie theater who is okay except for the bad breath? No? No, that's Billy. Deciding Stan seems relatively safe, Kate says yes, but says she's coming too, which is fine with Allie. Whatever, really, she just wants to see her crush. At home, Kate finds the playdate to be more exhausting than most of her past missions, even chasing vampires through Budapest. Okay, seriously though, where is my prequel? And to make things worse, some little brat makes Timmy cry by taking his bear and refusing to give it back, even when told to by the adults. Her mom, of course, is no help, saying that maybe Timmy shouldn't be so attached to one toy. And Laura, sensing danger, arrives and places her hand on Kate's shoulder, working to keep her calm. So Kate goes to calm down Timmy, assuring him that Boo Bear will be back soon, while Danielle, the horrid child in question, is cajoled and negotiated with by her mother, promised ice cream and a new toy and a pony ride at the zoo if she gives Timmy his toy back. As they leave and Kate sees how sad Timmy is, Laura has to remind her that the other mother is not a demon. Well, she is to Kate. I can relate to that, oddly enough. I don't have kids, except one furry one, Tiba, who you guys hear me talk about. But if some other small child tried to terrorize my nephew, you better bet I'd go to war with their parent. The play date over and Mindy and Allie come downstairs. Only Allie's the only one dressed to work out. Mindy's rethinking all of this. After all, Cutter is cute and she doesn't want to look silly. Well, Laura puts a stop to that, saying Kate worked hard to set this up. Mindy is going and actually Laura thinks she'll join them. She may be the sidekick, but she is not going down without a fight. Post-workout, they return to the house so the girls can get meeting a boy ready. This gives Eddie and Kate a chance to talk and after some playful banter, in which it's clear Eddie is growing on Kate and by versa. Eddie tells her he knows what Goromish is after, the Lazarus bones. Kate wants to know more, but the girls are ready and it's time to head off to the mall. One settled at a table, far from the girls, but still in sight, so the girls could show off Stan without acknowledging the adult's existence. Kate asks Eddie again about the Lazarus bones. What are they, and why has she never heard of them? The Lazarus bones are pretty much exactly what they sound like, the bones of Lazarus, which when used in a specific ritual, have the power to raise the dead, reanimate them, repair the flesh, make it seem like they never died, making them the perfect space for a demon to move in. With the Lazarus bones, Goromesh could raise a demon army. As to why she's never heard of them, well, that's because Eddie's the only person alive who knows about them. Back in the 50s, he was sent by the Vatican to New Mexico to help pack up some relics before the government began their atomic testing. Standard work for a hunter, as relics 
objects being taken off site make them ripe for stealing. Well, they were betrayed and most of their party killed, except for Eddie and the priest of Father Michael. Michael, as in Brother Michael, the monk who killed himself. Eddie had been too wounded to go on, but Brother Michael was not. He took the bones someplace the demons would never be able to get it, to San Diablo and the cathedral with its sainted mortar. This cinches it. Kate knows now she was right in her theory. He must have accidentally revealed the city, but made sure he could never reveal the urn's exact location. Unfortunately, there's not much else that can be done that night, especially as Allie's crush has arrived at the table and her mom duties call. Of course, when she turns to get a look at Stan, her heart stops. It's the Richie Cunningham demon from before. Well, this is not good. Not good at all. They need to get Allie away from the demon and fast. Of course, she also needed to do that without the demon recognizing her. Because if he did, there was a good chance he would kill Allie before she made it across the food court. Her first few efforts to go are thwarted by Eddie, who tells her to wait. Wait until the time is right. Then he himself heads in that direction, buying two sodas and delivering them to the table. Two, as in Mindy has already cut out, getting a vibe off Allie and Stan. And giving Allie a chance to introduce her crush to her great grandpa. As he returns to the table, he tells Kate to wait for it. For a moment, it seems as nothing was happening. And then Allie begins asking Stan if he's okay. No, no, he's not okay. He's a demon. And Eddie laced the sodas with holy water. Clearly in pain, face twisted and contorted, he lashes out, looking in Kate's direction as he threatens to kill her. It sends Allie running to her mom and Kate hugs her tight as the demon stumbles towards the exit. For a moment, she continues following, but it's no use. He'll be dead soon enough. As Allie laments her crush being a total freakazoid, Kate and Laura take the girls, Timmy and Eddie home. Kate has trouble sleeping that night, worried about everything, including Stuart, who is once again up working late. When he comes upstairs, the two chat and she finally tells Stuart about putting Timmy in daycare. When his only question is, did you check them out? It cements in Kate's mind that something is wrong. Stuart is never that checked out of parenting decisions. As much as she hates to admit it, her husband is working for a demon. Which is why she doesn't mind when he's gone the next morning. Besides, she needs to get Allie and Timmy out the door before going to meet with Larson and telling him what she found out. Larson, though, seems frustrated by the fact they don't know the exact location and presses to Kate that they must find it before he does. Kate suggests that maybe it's best to leave them where they are. After all, Goromesh can't get into the cathedral. But no, Larson doesn't agree. He doesn't believe the demon will give up just because the task isn't easy. Kate is unsure of what to do. Eddie doesn't know anymore. And brother Michael died, taking his secret to the grave. There's no way for them to find out. Except the more Kate thinks about it, the more it makes sense. Brother Michael was from Italy. Florence is a town in Italy. Perhaps Michael Florence was code. And the dust inside the gold box was none other than the pulverized Lazarus bones. They need to go now, get it, and arrange for travel back to the Vatican. Larson can't go now. He has court, but they recess in an hour. He could go then. Why doesn't Kate go get the bones and he'll meet her? Kate doesn't love it, but she agrees, deciding they should meet at her house so they can test them first. Retrieving the box from the cathedral, Kate brings the dust inside back to her house, where an hour later, everyone is gathered around. They decide the best way to test the bones is holy water. And while Kate says Larson should have the honors, Larson insists Eddie do it. He's earned it after all. They drip holy water on the bones and nothing. Nada. Which prompts Larson to ask if she was sure that was holy water. After all, the staff had been lying to Eddie. No, it's holy water. Father Ben replenishes the holy water every morning and Kate filled the bottle up for Eddie herself. Guess they need to keep looking. Larson and the others leave and Kate and Eddie talk. Kate mentioning how, like Eddie, she is now retired and this is a one-time thing. Retired? Eddie's not retired. He's just spent the past couple of decades hiding out, trying to stay one step ahead of the demons hunting him. 
him. Turns out Goramesh has been looking for these bones for a long time. It's in this conversation, Kate also learns that Eddie didn't come to San Diablo. He was brought there by demons who hoped that in his drugged up state, he'd reveal the location of the bones. It's the day of the church bazaar and Kate is helping out, serving funnel cakes on the field and waiting for a time when she can sneak down to the archives. Allie is taking care of Timmy, something she feels is truly cramping her style. When Kate's shift at the funnel cake booth is over, she finds Laura and the two of them walk to the cathedral together. Laura wants to help, but Kate assures her the best way she can help is to go relieve Allie. After all, she still doesn't know what they're looking for, but as she goes to genuflect, it hits her. Laura told her there were five martyrs, but Kate saw six bags of remains, meaning one of those bags was a fate and the Lazarus bones. It all starts falling into place then, how it was all meant to be clues for Eddie to follow. The name, the dust in the box symbolizing that the bones have been pulverized. She calls Larson and he says he's on his way to grab the bones and he'll meet her there before heading to the airport. As she finds the bag, she is certain is a fake, Reginald Talley. She reflects on how easy it was, how none of the horrible things she imagined had come to pass, how there were no demons or human pets waiting to take her on and steal the bones. And that's when she realizes that she was the human pet. Larson lied. Goramesh wasn't non-corporeal. He was Goramesh, which explains why he kept avoiding the cathedral, why he was always chewing mint gum. She abandons the plan to get back to the bones because fuck that. He wants the bones, he can get them himself. And she heads back up to the bazaar, only to find Laura sans her children. Her children are with Larson, who said he was taking them for ice cream. Larson said she okayed it. Did she not okay it? No, no she did not. Larson is a demon and they need to find him right now. Minnie returns in tears and says that Larson told her to leave as she wasn't needed. Allie and Timmy, however, he took with him. That's when Kate gets the call on her cell phone. She needs to bring him the bones or he'll kill her children, which means there's only one thing left to do. Heading back down into the archives to gather what she needed, she reflects on all the signs she missed, how she should have realized what was going on. Then heading topside once more, she prepares to call Laura and let her know what's going on when the sight of a car barreling towards her stops her, a car that belongs to Larson. Every muscle in her body tenses and she prepares for a fight, going over to the driver's side and ripping open the door only to find Allie. She got away, but Larson still has Timmy. They're in the cemetery. She finds out where in the cemetery and heads in that direction. When she arrives, Larson offers her an exchange, the bones for her son. Kate does hesitate for a moment, trying to figure out a way out of this, but Larson lets her know he will kill Timmy. He doesn't want to. He wants the bones more than he wants to kill her son. But if she pushes him, surrendering the bag she has, Timmy is pushed in her direction. It's then Kate asks when Larson died, when Goramesh managed to take over. Thing is, Larson didn't die. He's still in there. Turns out he was diagnosed with cancer. And when his hunter told him about the Lazarus bones, he knew he had a bargaining chip. Goramesh wanted the bones. He wanted to live. So he gave up his body willingly to the demon, betraying the Forza. Which I guess shouldn't have been a total surprise as he had been researching the Black Arts when he discovered the Forza. Larson goes to start the ritual and nothing happens. Well, not nothing. He gets a bit of pain as Kate switched things up. She didn't bring the Lazarus bones. She brought the remains of the one martyr who was beautified. It wouldn't kill him like a saint's remains, but it would slow him down and piss him off. Realizing she lied, he goes to attack. She fumbles with her holy water vial and it breaks. Somewhere in the scramble, Timmy bites Larson and gets thrown. As he tackles Kate, he tells her Timmy is dead. She refuses to believe it though. Won't believe it. He's dead, Larson repeats, but he can give him back to her if she just gives him the bones. No, fine. He'll snap her neck and leave her there and still raise the boy, claiming him as one of his. Their struggle continues until Kate hears sirens in the distance. Someone, it seemed, called the police. Good. The thought of backup gives her a renewed burst and she throws Larson off just long enough to get her hair clip out and shove it through his eye. Poof, no more demon. And as she's catching her breath, she hears Timmy call to her weakly. She was right to not believe Larson. Timmy was okay. Larson was dead. It was over, at least for now. Turns out it was Allie who called the cops. As there were several witnesses and testimonies to Larson having kidnapped Kate's kids, 
demons. His dead body is not a problem, and the fact Kate appeared to have killed him and the other demon was labeled self-defense. Timmy was taken to the ER, and after a few nights of nightmares, was declared fine. No lasting injuries or side effects. Turns out Eddie is still living with them, and he and Allie are now totally bond. And Laura and Mindy are still taking self-defense classes with Kate. Speaking of whom, Kate is no longer retired. Demons are going to keep coming, and she's going to stop them. And yeah, she might have to keep that part of her life secret from her family, but what family doesn't have a few secrets? And that's it. That is Carpe Demon. I, like I said, me rambling at you guys for an hour. What can I say? Some final thoughts. I think the character of Kate is very similar to Buffy. I think that comes out. I think they have a similar feel. And I think that's why this book is so much fun to those of us who grew up watching Buffy in our formative teenage years to then see that same kind of heroine reflected in an adult setting. You know, she's a mom. She's doing her mom life things. And she's still out there kicking ass. It's the same thing we saw in Buffy as a teenage girl. We saw this girl who was just like us, who was having these high school problems just like us, who were having love problems, boyfriend problems, just like us. And now we get in Kate that same kind of hero. We get in Kate a woman who is just like us. Yes, sure. She was raised by the secret demon-haunted organization out of the Vatican. But the way she presents in the story, she's very relatable. Her problems are very relatable. Her son was labeled a biter at preschool. Playgroup is exhausting. Her husband is springing dinner parties on her. These are problems we all have in our everyday lives. Or, you know, something similar. And we can relate to Kate on that level. And we can get behind her. The same way we could get behind Buffy. And I love that. I love that Julie gives us this very strong, relatable heroine. And that's why I was so excited to talk about this book and so excited to share this series with you guys. And I really hope you like it because I'd love to share more of it and to ramble with you guys about how much I love Kate and Eric. You are not prepared for that. But I hope you had fun. I hope I didn't bore you too much being alone this week. And like I said, Dylan will be back next week. But until then, thank you all for listening and make sure you join us next time when we take on season one, episode seven, Angel. Until then, check out our various social media channels, all of which will be listed below. And if you like the show and want to let us know it, you can subscribe, rate and review wherever you listen to your podcasts or write to us directly at thewatchersdiaries at gmail.com. Bye. Bye.